Well, it's a great privilege for me to be here today with Glenn Scrivener. Back to London for the day. Back to London, back to this big smoke yeah. from Eastbourne. You were born in Eastbourne, weren't you? There's very little that Eastbourne's known for, but your birth <laughs> is one of the things. We have a tour every year <laughs> to commemorate your birth. Eastbourne, I've heard it has the best climate of any place in Britain. Is that why you went there? Well, my Australian family thinks it's hilarious that it's called the Sunshine Coast, because we have a Sunshine Coast in Australia, and it's, it's about five kilometres from the centre of the sun in Australia. You can audibly hear your skin crackling <laughs> in, a, in Australia, but... Uh, now, have you, you haven't always, obviously always been in Eastbourne? You were in London prior to this? <clears throat> so, yes. So, before Eastbourne, I was training for the ministry. I'm an Anglican minister, and I was at Bible College up in Oak Hill in North London. And before that, I was working for a church here in London, very close to here, really, St. James Clerkenwell. And, uh, and before that, I was at uh, All Souls Langham Place. So, yeah, I know London a little bit. Fantastic. And when you were there at All Souls, did you... Uh... You would have been, was it Richard Buse or? He was the, yeah, yeah, yeah golden, golden years. And uh, John Stott was sort of rector emeritus and still preaching and would still show up at, at you know, Monday staff lunches and things like that. And oh, it was wow. wonderful to be around him and Rico Tyson staff as well. And mm. Paul Blackham was there. And it was, yeah, it was a wonderful time to be there. Yeah. It's a special congregation in that it's continued mm. to be vibrant for decades, quite rare and under yes. several different uh, Yes. leaders to have continued in its vitality. Yeah, long may it, long may it continue, because it's a, quite a strategic place. Um, you know, everyone's coming through London and, and, the, and the congregation, 60% of the congregation turns over every three years. Mm -hmm. um, but if you can see yourselves as, as those who can equip that 60% to then go out from London and, and preach the gospel throughout the, the nations, really, I think that's, that's a wonderful service to the global church right here in London. Yeah, and it's probably no surprise with that sort of strategy that it has continued its vitality rather than stultifying that they have a visionary push. Yes. And with characters like Christopher Wright and his mission yeah, push. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And the Langham what... Partnership coming out from there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And what are you doing in Eastbourne now? I, so I'm an Anglican minister. That took me down to Eastbourne. So I was a curate, um, which for those who don't know, is a, is a vicar with your L plates on. And I was a curate at All Souls Eastbourne. And after four years as a curate, I could have grown up and gotten a proper job. But instead, uh, a job as an evangelist uh, became available uh, with a, a ministry that's been going for now 65 years. Um, that's always been based in Eastbourne. And um, uh, yeah, I applied for that job and got it back in 2010. And I've been working uh, for this ministry for the last seven years, I guess. And for the last two years, I've been directing the ministry. And uh, we now call ourselves Speak Life. And uh, really, we're an evangelistic charity that seeks to uh, resource the church to reach the world. Fantastic. And uh, who was it who pioneered it back in the day? Back in the day, uh, Eric Hutchings was this. There, there'll be some, some of your listeners, Will, their ears will prick up. I remember Eric Hutchings. They'll have to be over a certain age because he died in 1982. Uh -huh. But in 1952, he founded the Hour of Revival Evangelistic Association. So uh -huh. They knew how to have good names back then. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was known as the British Billy Graham. I'm sure there's about 17 preachers that were known as the British Billy Graham. But he, he was one of them. And then he would have these mass interdenominational kind of crusades, as they would call them. And, uh, you know, Cliff Richard would come and sing and give his testimony and Eric Hutchings would preach and the choir would sing and people would come forwards in their hundreds. And, and that was really the, the sort of the flavor of the ministry. And there was also a big radio presence. He had a big radio ministry back in the day. And so I guess he was known for, for preaching and media in the terms of the 50s and 60s. Uh, mm. And we want to continue that legacy, mm, really. Yeah, that yeah, we're, yeah. we're really about preaching and media 
but media is no longer the radio, but yeah. uh, all sorts of other formats. Yeah, yeah. And we're really grateful for what you're doing there. It's been very provocative to us. I've seen your videos, your Christmas videos, which have really... And yeah. the way you're using poetry is... Yeah. Isn't it funny how these things... Poetry? But yeah, <laughs> people are forwarding on these extraordinary yeah. videos. And the fact yeah. is, if it's good, people will bother to watch it. It seems yeah. to be the case. Hopefully. And I think the way that video is shared is quite like the way the gospel is shared. You know, social media, uh -huh. if... You know, what you like, you share. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, that is the engine that drives all the social media. If people like it enough, they click share and off it goes. And it, it has the possibility to go viral. Well, that's, that's not, you know, that hasn't been invented in the noughties. That, that, that's the way the gospel has gone, Man. you know, has grown since the first century. That, yep. But really, it's, it's, you know, it, it is about what you like, you share. Yep. That if you like, if you love the good news of Jesus Christ... Uh, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth will speak, mm. and the gospel goes viral, person to person, person to person. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, really thinking through the fact that uh, the gospel spreads when people really start to like the gospel mm. makes you start to think, ah, you know, I need to preach the gospel to Christians as well as not Christians. Amen. Amen. And I need to preach it affectively and attractively mm -hmm. in a way that actually engages the heart in a, in a compelling way. That's right. Without that, no one's going to share it. Right. You know, right. with that though, I think then your Christians become your real evangelists. I don't need to leapfrog over the church and preach the gospel to all the non-Christians. Mm. What I need to do is resource the church for it to reach the world. And mm. I think we do that by preaching an attractive, compelling gospel to Christians and what they like, they share. That's okay. the idea. Yeah. Okay, now how about off the back of that, you know Jack Miller, see John Miller yeah. in America, his yeah. whole approach. He seems to have grasped a large part of that, but then what happens is he was derided by a certain side because, I presume, because he was too friendly, too nice, <laughs> and therefore he doesn't sound orthodox. Now, if you're talking about an attractive gospel, I, I remember hearing Piper say, uh, what I, he says, I have a PhD in theology. He says, but in the morning I have to get myself happy with Jesus. Mm. That's what he says. Now, how do, you, how do you get yourself happy with Jesus? What have, what have you found to be encouraging your heart? Well, I think it, be, it begins with a conviction that the gospel really is good news. That, you know, a lot of people come and say to me, if they like the videos that we do or something, they say, oh, I like, Glenn, that you tread that fine line between faithfulness to the gospel and attractiveness in the world's eyes as though these are trade-offs, right? Right. <laughs> as though we don't, we, we want to be attractive, not too attractive, because <laughs> we all know that the gospel is actually a nasty, bitter pill to swallow. But Glenn, thank you for sugarcoating that pill with just the right thickness so that people will swallow down this bitter, harsh, nasty news about Jesus. Desperate. And no one would articulate it in that way, but I wonder if our thinking does drift into that, that yes. the gospel is the bitter pill. Yeah. And a good evangelist is someone who can sugarcoat it just enough to mm -hmm. get people to swallow it. And, and I just don't believe that at all. There is, there, is, uh, there is a message of judgment to bring to the world. There is a, a message of repentance to bring to the world. Um, but all of that is in the context of saying, look, on the far side of repentance comes... Um, this beautiful vision of life and flourishing, and that actually the whole world wants to repent. Mm -hmm. They do. I mean, you, you go into a, uh, a news agency and you see, you see the, the magazines, and they're all telling you to repent, like every single one of them. You know, get your six-minute abs, and here's how to declutter your life and move to the country. Do, 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 do. It's yeah. telling you how to be new. Wow. New year, new you. Wow. The world loves repentance. Mm. They love repentance. Wow. But the repentance that the magazines are pressing are, are, are an incredibly depressing kind of... Um, 
treadmill that no one can actually live up to. Mm -hmm. So to come to the world and say, there is a new life to live, mm -hmm. and here it is, it's yours for free. Mm -hmm. It doesn't come natural to yeah, you. Yeah. It won't come natural to you, but it's yours for free in Jesus. Do you want it? Do you want him? Here he is. So, I, you know, so as, as I try to preach an attractive gospel, it bites in a lot of ways because it means that you are not the best arbiter of what makes you happy and you are no wow. longer, you know, you think that God is the problem with your happiness and you are the solution. You are exactly wrong. You yes. must repent. Yeah, you yeah, must yeah, change yeah. your mind. It is yeah, yeah. exactly the other way around. Yeah. You are the problem. God is the solution to your happiness. Mm. But on the far side of that repentance, there's a happiness that's, that's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So as to how, how do I... You know, pastor my own soul and get get happy in the Lord. Mm. I think you know, Muller in in um, uh, in Bristol kind of said said that you know that's that's his jo job every morning to get himself happy in the Lord. Mm. Um, and being a good Anglican, I, I I've actually just rediscovered liturgy and rediscovered um, just daily office stuff. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, there's a great app actually um, uh, called Daily Prayer that takes you through the Psalms in a, in a really beautifully Christ-centered way. And actually the, the prayers that come off the back of each Psalm um, beautifully bring into focus the way that Christ is either praying that prayer or the fulfillment of that prayer. Mm. Um, and I find that feeds my soul massively. Mm. Mm. Um, I find I need to pray out loud yes. or my mind just, oh, just yeah. zap, zap, zap. Um, I, it, sometimes I need to read the Bible out loud, and mm. you know, and I, and I think historically that's what we have had to do. You know, you know, people like Augustine back in the you know fourth, fifth century, you know, are talking about these weird people who they read but they don't make sounds with their mouths. Isn't that <laughs> odd? And we we take it as as completely normal to to sort of silently, yeah. inwardly retreat into ourselves to have our quiet time. <laughs> Isn't that interesting that we even talk about it as a quiet time? Yeah. So we inwardly retreat into ourselves in order to have this personal moment of non-physical spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, it's not really how we're wired. It's not what the Bible's all about. Yes. You know, when you, when you get, um, uh, you know, in, in 1 Samuel, and uh, um, there is Hannah, and she's praying and her lips are moving, yep. but no, no sound is coming out, mm -hmm. right? And, and so, you know, Eli thinks she is a she's drunk, drunk woman. She's drunk. Like, who, who prays without making a sound? Right. That's nonsense. Okay. You could only be drunk if you're doing that. Like, right. That is the assumption of people within the Bible. Wow. Um, so, so I, yeah, I've I found much more, I, I guess the stuff to do with liturgy makes, makes your spiritual life more tangible, mm. embodied, physical, that mm. sort of stuff. Yep. And I'm finding more recently that the more that I try to do that, writing out prayers, for instance, wow. tangibly trying to, that focuses the mind and the, yep. and the yep. heart in a way that if it's just me quietly retreating into myself, that becomes a hall of mirrors that I don't escape from. Yes, um, amen. So, yep. yeah. Those yeah I found that. Have you seen Carson's book, uh, For the Love of God? Right, yeah. Yeah. I found that to be terribly helpful because I used to find, you know, you'd read your bit of whatever it is, Jeremiah or whoever you're reading, and you think, well, I've done my Bible reading, but I am now more confused than when I began. And then there's always this thing of, I must read a commentary later to make sense of that, <laughs> which I must have done in my life following a devotional reading of the Bible, you no, know, three times, if that, you know. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, instead, yeah. when Carson helps you to see the Christwoodness or the Christlessness right. of what's going on, yeah. it's very helpful in, divert, in directing your heart. And as he helps, I found that to be a wonderfully helpful tool. But yeah, yeah, it's profoundly important that we actually are encouraging our hearts actually in Christ 
and right. not just encouraging our hearts in sentimentality. Right. And you, as someone who has looked into the text properly, who's been taught properly, <laughs> yeah. it's wonderful to hear you having that emphasis. So how did you come to understand the gospel yourself in the first place again? I guess, uh, it's interesting, like Jonathan Edwards always says that you tend to late date your conversion, which is an interesting insight that, that actually when you look back on your life story, you always want to give yourself more credit for the spiritual insight than you deserve. You know, <laughs> you kind of say, well, I understood this about Jesus and I understood this about the gospel, but I was not yet regenerate. I didn't have the spirit. That was just me being clever. Right, right? Right, right. So ever since I, I, I read that in Edwards, I've always been suspicious of how late I want to date my conversion. Um, I think I was converted at some point in the 1990s. And I think I used to think I was converted at the end of the 1990s. Maybe actually I was converted at the beginning of the 1990s. But I grew up in uh, a church going home in Australia. And uh, my uh, mum's my a great believer and a great Christian. Uh, my dad, um, while being you know, treasurer in church and all sorts of stuff, did not live the life at all in, in quite a significant way. Um, which really set the bomb off in our family. And I guess for all of us kids, I'm, I'm the youngest of three, my two older sisters um, are not believers today, and they would basically kind of point to the, the influence of, of our dad on them. And, and I guess their question was always, do I go with mum or do I go with dad? <laughs> Can I trust this Christian thing uh, when someone so close to us has, has, has really been a hypocrite in this area. Um, did you say you were the oldest of them? I was the youngest of three. So, so I guess growing up in that household, I was going along to church, and I knew all the right answers. If you stick the hand up in the Sunday school and say, Jesus, it's a fair bet. And I was the good kid. Um, and as a teenager, I gave my life to Jesus a thousand times. Mm. Um, I don't think that's an overestimate. I think every day from 13 onwards... I was giving my life to Jesus ever more melodramatically. Um, and one of my videos, I go into this. It's called, I gave my life to Jesus about a thousand times. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, growing up, the Garden of Gethsemane um, really was this, this moment in the scriptures that haunted me. And I, I kind of saw it as a model of what the Christian life was. There is Jesus alone before God, offering his life to God in this extraordinary kind of way, saying, your will be done. And I sort of, I, I remember kind of reading that and kind of thinking, right, that's what the spiritual life looks like, offering your life to God in extraordinary ways. And my teenage heart gripped hold of that, and I, and I did, and, and I would even go outside into wooded places like the Garden of Gethsemane, and I would press my face into the mud, and I would say, God, take me, use me, your will be done, and, and those sorts of things. Never understanding that, that he had given his life for me. Wow. It was all about my life given to God, and I never, and I, I remember running home from these, you know, earnest prayer times in, in a forest near our house, and, and going into the bathroom and looking in the mirror to see, is, am I changed? Is there a halo Gosh. above my head, a light behind my eyes? What's changed? Has God accepted my prayer? And I never felt like he had. And so, you know, how am I feeling about God day after day, constantly offering my life to God, never knowing whether he has received it? And by the, by the age of 18, I'd kind of had enough. I mm. kind of thought, God doesn't want me, so I don't want him. And I went away to university to try to have as good a time as I could without God. Um, and really what brought me back was the Garden of Gethsemane again. And I, I remember there was a, a friend at, at college who was not cool at all. He was, he was the opposite of cool. 
but he was very faithful as a Christian, very faithful in inviting me to church and inviting me to church. And I remember doing a Bible study with him at one stage and we got to the Garden of Gethsemane and I, and I said, I can't handle this passage. It's, it's just, it's too, it's too much. I, I, I don't think I can pray like Jesus prays here. I've tried it, but it doesn't work for me. I, I just can't do this anymore. And my friend just said, Glenn, do you think you're Jesus? But no, no, what kind of? <laughs> you know, like, you know, isn't that what would Jesus do? Isn't that the gospel? And, and my friend was like, Glenn, you know who you are in this story? You're Peter. <laughs> You're worthless, failing, sleeping Peter, and Jesus prays for you. Mm. Like, ah, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. And that was at the end of the 1990s. And that was then me kind of really getting it's not so much my life offered to God, it's Christ's life offered to me for free forever while I'm yet a sinner. And that absolutely transformed me. And, and the grace of Christ just sort of lit me up in an amazing way. So I don't know when I was converted. Was I converted age 13, praying that prayer for the first time? Mm -hmm. Was I converted age 21, understanding that it's Christ's life given to me? Mm. I don't know. Mm. And I've had lots of people sort of come to me saying, you know, it's funny, you prayed those thousand times and you thought God never heard you, but wasn't your prayer answered actually in the end? You know, what your prayer? Yeah, interesting. Um, So I don't know. And how does that influence you as an evangelist? Yeah, hugely, I think. So, you know, do I ask people to give their lives to Jesus? Actually, I, I, I offer Christ in the way that Wesley and Whitfield would offer Christ. And I do believe in, you know, praying and starting a relationship with Jesus. And, and you know, here are some words that you could use to start a relationship with Jesus. But I'm very clear about saying every time I, I sort of say you might want to pray along with me, I say these words are not magic. This is, this is not, this Absolutely. is just, yeah. this is a way that you might want to start a conversation with Jesus that will stretch on forever, but, but why don't you start and say hi, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. And, and, and here's a prayer. So, I've, yeah, so I'm always suspicious of the big events and the big, you know, we've had 217 salvations tonight, you know, really? <laughs> yeah. Salvations? Yeah, yeah. You know that? Yeah, yeah. Because there's a box ticked on a form, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it does it does shape things actually um, mm. quite a bit mm. um, in terms of how I do that. I was asking Rico Rico Tice who was someone who had had a big influence on him. Interestingly, he said John Chapman, mm. who you will have known. Of, yeah. And he said uh, that John Chapman taught him, it's not up to you to convert people, it's right. up to you to faithfully preach the gospel. Yeah. God does the converting. Right. And Rico said that was a life-changing moment for him. I thought right. that was so helpful yeah. because he really can. If it's yeah. the t- I, everyone I speak to, I ask them their testimony. That, I mean, literally, if we said, right, that's how people get saved, and then we started to aim at that, Right. The, sort of 99% of people wouldn't be saved, you know, yeah. because frankly, uh, the, the, the root is different each time. I think I was reading yeah. my daughter this morning, this, you know, Jesus one time spits in this guy's eyes. Right. And you think, okay, so from now <laughs> on we're spitting thing. eyes. Yeah, no, no, he only did that that time and then just yeah. does. But the point is you're offering Christ. Right. And that is the wonderful thing that he has offered himself. Right. Come to me, all right. you who are weak. Right. Down the road from here, Jolly, as we tell people on our walks, yeah. John Newton, you know, he was on a ship the night of the 20th, 21st of March, 1748, and he thinks, I'm going to die. I'm going to mm. die. He's on the edge of death. One of his fellow sailors has been washed off. Waves are breaking over the side. He's thinking, I'm going to die. And he prays, is there still mercy? Mm. And God has mercy 
And he, of course, is the man who goes on to write Amazing Grace. Grace. Yeah. Mercy. That's what, what we see in Christ. We see the mercy of God. So that's good. You're offering Christ. Because, that's wonderful because he offered himself. We're just telling people, bless yeah. God. That's wonderful. Huh. So um, have you, 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 I think a lot of us are grateful for your, uh, how you've dug into these people, obviously for, for the blessing of your own soul. Who are people who have influenced you and encouraged you from, from your own history or from the history mm. of the church? Well, while we're on the topic, I, I wasn't going to do it, but, but maybe George Whitfield would be a great guy to talk about. Mm. Um, it's very interesting. What we think of as evangelism has been really radically shaped by Charles Finney, uh, a revivalist preacher in the States in the 19th century. Uh, and what I find refreshing, I mean, he, he was a massive influence on, for instance, Moody, who very much influenced Billy Graham. And, and, and actually, the, what we think of as evangelism has been shaped um, uh, to a great degree by Charles Finney and, and, and his beliefs, even though a lot of his beliefs were uh, heterodox, let's, let's say. Um, but leapfrog over him historically. Go back behind him. And figure out what evangelism looked like. And it's quite refreshing to look at Wesley and Whitfield and, and the Great Awakenings of the 18th century. And, you know, Arnold Dalimore's mm. biographies in, in two volumes of, of George Whitfield is just balm for the soul, I, I find, anyway. And I, and I, and I think, yeah, that, that whole thing of I offered them Christ, that was the way that Whitfield would characterize a day of evangelism. And a day of evangelism for, for him meant preaching to tens of thousands. Um, now, he's an evangelist, and so you know, probably it was you know, less than that. Because you know what evangelists are like. <laughs> no, you know, at, at, at times there were 40,000 people listening in on, on, on Whitfield. And how is he going to characterize that evangelistic encounter? Is he going to tweet out 217 salvations tonight? No. What he, does, what he does talk about, fascinatingly, is talking about people being awakened mm. to the grace of Christ. And that's where we get like, the great awakening from, mm. because that was the way that they thought of people responding to the gospel, awakening. Because they were very aware that of the four soil types that Jesus speaks about in Mark chapter 4, three of them uh, respond quite positively to begin with. And so Whitfield was not trying to claim anything further than, this is, this is encouraging, <laughs> here, here are people awakened to the grace of Christ. Mm. Um, and so that, that I think was hell, is a healthy perspective that mm. really kind of reorients us. And the whole offering Christ thing, rather than my job as an evangelist is not to gain converts, mm. my, my job is to offer Christ. And when you switch things around in your head, it is, it is so liberating, just as you know, Rico's talking about John Chapman and, and, and saying that you know, it's, it, is, it is God's thing. Mm. You know, I, was, I was up the road preaching at, at St. James Clerkenwell, and I'd, I'd been there three or four years before I went to Bible college and there were a lot of non-Christians coming along regularly to, the, to this church, and yet they had not, they would not yet, you know, call themselves Christians. And, and I was just begging them to turn to Christ, begging them at the end of this sermon, um, sermon on Psalm 32, and uh, and and here here is David calling on the Lord for forgiveness. Have you called on the Lord for forgiveness? I beg you to do it. I beg you. To. I was in tears at the end of the sermon, and. Um, and actually, my, my whole mood at the end was turned around in four words. A friend who was at the church just came up to me afterwards, and I was a mess. And he, he turned my mood in, in, a, in four words. He just says, you sowed the seed. Wow. 
you sewed the suit. Wow. And it absolutely transformed my, my mood in four words because yeah, it is this supply-side economics. It is, it, is, it is this, I have a message to deliver and having delivered it, I am free. Free to move on, free to, you know. So, yeah. The striking thing also is that that message, we're told to remember that our leaders, those who went before us, consider the outcome of their way of life right. and imitate their faith. Ah. What's interesting is we're not told to imitate the manner of their way of life. We're told not to imitate, you know, yeah. their lifestyle. We're told to imitate their faith. Ah. What strikes me as interesting is that, of course, that is the gospel. We have put our faith in some a person. This is it. Say a faith in a person. I agree. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, and the, but yeah. the striking thing is there: the people who have put their faith in him, who have found him to be the one when the waves were rising, who have found him to be the one when I had denied, you know, like Peter in the right. in the in the uh, courtyard at that moment, they come out gracious. There is a you, you find you know the way Whitfield interacted with Edwards, and he's just he's just full of graciousness and love. Right. You're mentioning Finney. You hear Packer say, I have a bit of a soft spot for Finney. Yeah, and you think, yeah. Packer? Say, <laughs> you should be beating him. It's not right. a soft spot for him. And you think, yeah. there's something about, you know, I think yeah. the Lord also yeah. has a soft spot for him. Yeah, right. That's what faith, you know. Yeah. I take their faith. And the wonderful um, thing, of course, about these guys who died, and Pipe puts it well when he says that... Uh, usefulness of a guy who's died is you know how they ended. <laughs> and so... And so you can look at their letters, you can read their diaries and say, I see the faith mm. they had. I see, I see what it was like. I yeah. see in private. This is yeah. what the research tells me, you know. Yeah. And that's yeah. A, yeah, you find great encouragement in them. So Witters, anyone else apart Witters. from <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was gonna say Luther, but I I'm, I'm sure everyone says Luther. Luther who? Vandross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> love his music. Um, his Galatians commentary uh, is just full of balm for the soul. His, I mean, for instance, one, one thing he said about um, let the law speak to your flesh, let it never speak to your conscience. Wow. Um, wow. Just, just that, you know, as a, as a line, or just, just his dialogues with the devil, and, you know, but, you know whenever, whenever the devil you know, throws your sins in your face, you say, what of it? I know Christ who has made satisfaction for my sins, Amen. jog on Satan and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and I just think, you know, who writes like that anymore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's really got a pastor's heart as the, as the fires of the Reformation are burning. It is really for the comfort of Christians um, that he's writing. He's really, he really has a pastor's heart for people. That's where it's all coming yeah, from. Amen. That so, is a pastor's heart. That yeah. is a pastor's heart. You, yeah. there, is a, there, is, there is an understanding of a pastor's heart, which is essentially give sentimentality to people and stroke them. And, right. you know, you can... Uh, Lloyd-Jones said that thing about, you know, sometimes if someone comes into you as... If you're a doctor, someone comes in presenting with pain, the worst thing you can do is to give them a palliative because right. pain is very useful for telling right. you what the problem is, you know? Right. And if you just tell someone, oh, no, 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 it's all right. That's ah. not pastoral. If you can actually tell them... Where to apply right. the, yeah. I, I, I tell you, I once yeah. got to ask um, Tim Keller a question and it changed my life. Hmm. I, I asked him, I said, um, so how is it you planted that big old church just uh, from personal evangelism? He said, the importance of listening. Yeah. He says, asking questions. He says, when you can find your friend's objection to the gospel and when you can articulate it better than they can, yeah. that's a key moment. 
Yeah. I thought I've never heard that. And it was yeah. brilliant because he's like, oh, there's no, no yeah. he's scared of it. This is what he right. wants to get to. Right. But then you can apply the gospel like a surgeon rather right. than chucking it from a distance. You know? Right. Oh, I, I thought love that it. was helpful. Yeah, yeah. What a blessing, huh? Yeah. One of the world's greatest preachers is a great listener, and that's his secret. Yeah. 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 Listen to my question. Yeah. <laughs> I once asked him a question. He had no idea what it, what it was saying. I didn't really know what it was saying. <laughs> In this Q&A session, and after, it was such a bad question, so badly articulated by me, that as everyone was getting up for coffee, he points at me like this, as you, over here. Oh, wow. And I get summoned, he says, I, I wasn't really getting your question. I was like, yeah, I wasn't really getting your question. <laughs> and we, and we, yeah, he was great. He was great about oh, it. Oh, that's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, what a blessing he is to the church. And what's striking in his case, of course, is he hasn't just learned techniques. The more you listen to him, no. you realize... Oh yeah, his roots go deep into you know until Murray, all these guys. I, I think he's probably he might be my, my favorite living preacher, but his techniques are rubbish. <laughs> I I think he is a one. I think he's a wonderful preacher. He's an out of this world preacher, but he's terrible at knowing why he's a good preacher. <laughs> That's funny. Right. I think I don't know. I don't know. Who am I to say these things? But I I think he often articulates the reason why his preaching connects. In terms of contextualization okay. and, and theories yeah, yeah, of triperspectivalism and blah yeah, blah blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he preaches law and gospel. Amen. That's what connects with people. That's he preaches so, law and gospel. But I ha not since the clowny lectures. You know, did yeah. you ever get those on iTunes? Oh, fantastic. The, yeah, those clowny lectures about you know preaching Christ and all the scripture. Absolutely fantastic. I think there he unpacks why he's a good preacher. I mm -hmm. think. Right. I think. Yeah, go back to that. I think because he basically preaches the gospel every Sunday. Isn't that an astonishing Amen. thing to do? Amen, that's right. How novel. Yeah, 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 <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. it is quite novel. He's, yeah. But, yeah, but he does the law gospel thing every yeah. Sunday. He helps me, he's helped me to see what Paul, probably what Paul meant when he says, I'm looking forward to coming and preaching the gospel to you. Mm. And so people have said, oh, he must have been talking to unbelievers then. <laughs> so, no, no. He wants to and trying to gain converts and do prayers of commitment. And that, yeah, you know, yeah, see, yeah. Finney again. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> striking. Yeah, excellent. So, so there's a couple of people from uh, church history who've been blessing, who've blessed you. Um, any particular book you'd recommend? You say the Dalimore? Yeah, Arnold Dalimore on, on Whitfield. Um, fantastic. Yeah. fantastic. Yeah, the funny thing about old Dalimore, of yeah. course, he led a tiny little church in Canada, <laughs> yeah. and then he died. Yeah. And everyone who reads his book is, is changed. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, it's like us, the little churches, you know, yeah. not making any difference. And they're changing the world. Not only are they changing the world, but Christ says, yes. Yeah, there we go. That's, yeah. So that's beautiful. So to what are you up presently? <laughs> to what am I up? <laughs> Perish the thought that we finished a sentence on a preposition. Uh, I have just, I've just come from a, a debate that I did uh, with a, a Muslim apologist on uh, Christ. Christ in the Old Testament, Trinity in the Old Testament. So that was a, that was a bit of fun. Uh, what's what's really uh, uh, absorbing my energies? I'm working on a few different books. I'm working on uh, a, a Bible overview in 15 chapters. Uh, That's a fun, fast-paced little thing. Uh, Who wrote it? So me. <laughs> That's my joke. In, in the <laughs> That's right. I'm working on this book. Um, yes, yeah, so that I'm doing a, a book of daily devotions and oh, I'm working, right. working on an Easter book. I gotta get ahead for Easter. Mm. It's getting late. Strategic. Yeah. And then kind of online wise, 
Christmas mm-hmm. is coming upon us, and we've got a top last year's, which was phenomenal. I loved la- our video last year. I'm allowed to say that because I'm not in it. And I think that's the, be- <laughs> the best thing about it is there's no me. And um, this year, there will not be me either. Well, I'll be behind the camera. Um, but I really want to... Um, I really want to put something out there that is of the quality of a John Lewis, of a Sainsbury's, of a Tesco's kind of a Christmas campaign, because they have become these cultural kind of watermarks. Is that a phrase? Watermark doesn't really work here, but they, they have been they, they have been these markers. People think Christmas begins when they watch the John Lewis commercial, mm-hmm. and it's become a tradition and it's become what we associate with Christmas. Well, how much more do we need to redeem that because we have the, the yeah, true yeah, Christmas yeah. message. Amen. Um, and we're working on some scripts that are, I think, good and will be funny, make you laugh, make you cry. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to, to pressing ahead with that, uh, filming in the autumn and, and uh, releasing that at Christmas time. Cool. Yeah. That's been, it's, it's extraordinary what you can do now with the technology. Yeah. And, and the quality of your videos has been, a, I think, benchmark. Is the word you were looking for? It's well, been a it's the, nothing to do with me. It's, yeah. I, we, you know, we, I, we just use good people. Um, but yeah, it's and that's important. That's important. The gospel is. is beautiful. Let's make our gospel presentations beautiful. Are they are they available in a consultancy capacity? There are a lot of churches. We're thinking I could never do that without. And but they do. You guys have an, uh, an organizational name which you could mention? So I mean, one guy I work with is Sam Kwan, and he's part of Cinematic Tide. Uh, he works out in Belfast, um, but he is. Uh, stunning. I mean, I, I could watch his Vimeo channel just on a loop. Mm. He's got these these uh, drone videos and things, and just just all his productions look like Hollywood films. So Sam Quine at Cinematic Tide, wow. and then uh, Luke Aylin, who's in Eastbourne, um, where we are. He's worked on the last couple of Christmas videos for us as well. He's a brilliant young videographer. He's 25, um, but uh, yeah, does really quality work for us. So, yeah. Brilliant. No, they're, they're fantastic. So, yeah, much to learn from those guys, as you say. Uh, that is where it is now, and you guys are pioneering for the church in this country with that stuff. Hmm. Now, um, what advice do you have to give to, uh, to our listeners? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're in our podcast, we're in a series right now of um, surprising gospel strategies. And it's things like lock your church doors, you know. Um, so you might think that's a surprising strategy. Well, it is. You know, on Sunday evening after church, lock your doors, send your congregation out, scatter them you know, to the four winds. Let us not be constantly orbiting around the central axis of church, but, but wow. actually you know, getting out there. So you know, that was one of our surprising gospel strategies. But our, our, one of our most recent gospel, surprising gospel strategies is don't tell people Jesus is God. Um, and so that's, that's, that's my, that'll, that'll be my advice. Don't tell people Jesus is God. Tell people God is the Jesus God. And what I mean by that is so often we tend to think that the way to faith is to have a concept of God first and then to try to fit Jesus into that mold. Mm. Um, and I guess in a, in a more Christianized culture that can work because when your concept of God is essentially Christian anyway, having been introduced to God, you've been introduced to the God anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's not so much of a problem. But I think as we're you know, increasingly secularized and have lost the Christian story, uh, the fact that somebody does not believe in God or does believe in God is often neither here nor there. 
Um, and so my big question for people, you know, when I'm sharing my faith is if they say they believe in God, I say, well, that's nice. Which God do you believe in? And if they say they don't believe in God, my question is exactly the same. Uh -huh. Tell me which God don't you believe in? Right. Um, we probably have a lot to agree on about that. And as they describe to me some kind of Thor figure with a lightning bolt ready to hurl at you, I can, I can say, well, you're right not to believe in that guy. Let me tell you about Jesus. So I, th I think, you know, theologically where I'd ground this is, you know, John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You know, we, we tend to think that God is the known factor in any conversation, and Jesus is unknown. You know, everybody knows what they're talking about when they're talking about God. God, he's the big guy, yeah. Right. We, we understand who God is. Jesus now, is he the son of God? Is he a prophet? Is he a myth? Who is Jesus? We don't know about Jesus, but we know who God is, right? That's how we think in the culture. It is the exact reverse of the case in the Bible. In the Bible, no one has ever seen God. Right. But the one and only who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So it's not that God is unknown, Jesus, God is known and Jesus is unknown. It is God is unknown. Jesus is the known God. He is the one who is on show, who demonstrates to us what kind of God God really is. And where the rubber hits the road, I think I was preaching in, in Exeter, and there was a woman who uh, was listening in, and she was taking copious notes in, in her notebook and, and listening, hanging on my every word. And this is such a remarkable thing. I had to ask her about it because it never happens anywhere else. <laughs> but I asked her, you know, you, you seem very keen. And she said, oh, I've, it's, it's just wonderful to come to England. I was in Iran. I grew up in Iran. I went to the mosque. I learned, you know, the Arabic prayers and didn't understand them, but I learned the Arabic prayers and I was a good Muslim. But my uncle, aged 14, he got me a copy of the, copy of the Gospels. And I read through the Gospels. And halfway through Luke's Gospel, I concluded that God cannot be the God of the Ayatollahs. He must be the Jesus God. And ever since then, I've just been using that phrase, the Jesus God, the Jesus God. This wow. is what we're on about. Mm -hmm. Not the God of the Ayatollahs. Not the God that you grew up with. Not, mm -hmm. the, the, God, not the God, this Christless God that you wow. imagine might be there. Mm -hmm. Because how many, how many testimonies are basically, well, I'd always believed in God, and then I came to see that Jesus was the God I'd always believed wow, in. Wow, that's strong. You know, like, you, you know the old myth of Procrustes. You know, the, a Procrustean bed is, the, you know, the myth of Procrustes is that he has this bed and he has this guest house. You can stay in his guest house, and his bed will always fit you. It will always fit you, because the way he makes the bed fit you is that in the night, if your legs are too long, he'll chop them off, right? And so we have this idea of the Procrustean bed. It's this, it's this pre-commitment to an idea that you then fit everything to. Mm -hmm. And so often, you know, God is this Procrustean bed. And we imagine that God is like this. And then if we then imagine God is like this, and then Jesus is over here, we're going to have to chop his legs off, chop his arms off. We're going to have to try and fit him into this mold. And what you find is people love Jesus. People are like, oh, here's this crying, laughing, you know, shouting, you know, tear-filled, love-filled, human sacrifice, bleeding for the world. That's interesting. And then we say, yeah, yeah, but if you press beneath that, it's just the God stuff. He's, he's actually God, you know, as though that's something different. Whereas when you say, look, forget your picture of God. When I say God, I mean a bleeding sacrifice with his arms outstretched to the world, loving you more than his own life. That's what I mean by God. I don't know what you mean by God, but that's what I mean by God. Mm -hmm. And right there, you're into a good conversation. Wow. <laughs> you know? yep. So don't tell them that Jesus is God. Tell them that God is the Jesus God. And there's no other God but the Jesus God. Wow. So begin all your thinking in Him and let Him tell you who the Jesus God really is. Wow, that's striking.
Well, thank you very much indeed for your time today, Glenn. Pleasure. It's been really fantastic to have some time with you. Thank you for what you're doing. May the Lord be lifted up in what you're doing. Amen. Amen.